you may be right, but it's not a good wholesome thing to do. Being no. right is not always wholesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet in our society, being right seems to be the only criteria. It just cut out at that time. What's her name? Uh, her name is Shishi. Shishi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my girlfriend named her. That was like, that's, I don't know where she got the name from, but it kind of stuck. It was kind of a nickname and it stuck. Uh huh. Like the last time I talked to you, I was afraid she was going to do the same thing. She just, whenever I'm on the computer, that's when she likes to get up on me. But she was asleep last time and this time she kind of woke up and Actually, no, there she was. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what she's there for, is for being a pet. Yep. And so that's what she's wanting. She's wanting to be petted. Oh, yeah. And it also has to do with time structure. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were a cat or you were a dog living in somebody's house and they fed you and your only job was to either bark when you hit a noise or to lay about and be happy. Mm -hmm. She's just doing her job. Oh, yeah. Which is yeah, uh, she's getting ready to she's getting ready to wake me up in the next couple of hours. When I go to bed, that's when she'll she'll usually lay down on the bed with me for about an hour or two. And then around 12 or one o'clock, this little switch comes on and it says run around the house and go crazy. And that's pretty much what she'll do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, with the remarkable point about the easy life that most American um, house pets have, if there is a thing like rebirth or reincarnation, then I would choose being a house dog. Oh, yeah. I and was a, talking about house, house cat would be the second choice. I don't know if I remember if I told you last, um, last time we spoke, uh, there's a monk, um, a Theravada monk that I will go get breakfast to on Sundays. Uh -huh. And um, he was talking about my cat the other day. And he was he was talking about, well, I guess if you're going to talk about rebirth and a cat, um, they have it or pets have it the best because they're not really having to kill anything. So there's no real bad comma. <laughs> it's like they're just. They just got it easy. I was like, yep, she, well, she'll, if she, I told him, well, if she sees a bug in the house periodically, and she will, she'll definitely go after it. It's like, it's that evolutionary instinct, you know, mm -hmm. just kicks right in. You just made a really, really interesting point there through the monk. And that is, is that when the dogs are barking or when the cat's chasing a mouse, or when the cat is chasing a bug that she catches. And these dogs here being in the kind of neighborhood that we have, uh, in the past eight or 10 years, we have had four or five episodes with roosters. Mm -hmm. And when the rooster from one of the neighbors uh, uh, gets loose and comes into this territory, the dogs will chase that rooster down. And the question is, is can the humans get to the rooster before the dogs kill it? Mm -hmm. 
And if there's only one dog chasing a rooster, the rooster generally wins. But when two dogs are chasing the rooster, the rooster doesn't have much of a chance. No, not at all. Uh, even if it can fly a little bit, it doesn't fly far enough. So the point that I'm making is, is that this behavior of the dogs are is instinctual. It's mm -hmm. as instinctual as people jumping when they hear a loud noise. Gun goes off right behind your head. And we jump. Right. Yep. It's a, an instinctual reaction. OK, human killing. Is almost never an instinctual reaction. For one thing, it's too hard to kill a human. Mm -hmm. OK, but unless you've got modern guns. And then you can say that that's the case, that in fact, people do get killed with modern weapons simply because all it takes is just the instinctual pulling of a trigger. Yep. OK, if we look at it from that perspective, then. We need to look at our instincts. To look at our bad behavior. Because the bad behavior that is not acceptable in human society is generally because people are acting out of their instincts rather than acting out of knowledge. The dogs and the cats, they don't have that kind of knowledge. They don't have that kind of memory, in fact. It's really interesting like that, that uh, uh, this is actually commonplace, that you can actually punish or abuse a dog in the morning. And he'll be all friendly to that person in the afternoon. If it gets yep. all about it. You abuse a person, they'll remember it for years. Mm -hmm. OK, so this is uh, a point that we have to understand about instincts and um, let us say memory and wisdom and that kind of thing so that we can then understand. The Buddha's points about what is morality. Because um, what that monk said was basically a child's or a beginner's view of morality. And this is the typical way that it's taught. But there is a more adult way of looking at morality. And um, in the child's position of morality, the normal way that we look at it is, is that we make morality a set of rules or standards to live by. But if we uh, have it from, uh, let us call it rather than the adult position, we look at it from the noble position so that when someone like the Buddha or like a, uh, an old time meditator or someone who is practicing correctly, and they get to the point to where their mind is pure and they have only wholesome thoughts. Then with wholesome and only wholesome thoughts, the mind becomes completely organized and unified. And with that, then, because that person does not want anything, he's unlikely to go out and kill for it. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't want anything, he's unlikely to go out and take it from someone shoplift, uh, uh, kleptomania, uh, white collar 
crime, you know, the whole different range of uh, various feelings that we have. If you don't want anything, you don't do any of that stuff. And if you if your heart is right, if you're uh, if you have uh, a, the mind is pure, doesn't have any um, ill will or any um, competition for others. And our, in, in competition, if we're not competing with others, then we're probably not gossiping about them. Mm -hmm. Not telling lies about them. And in that regard, then our speech becomes pure. So what I'm pointing at is, is that in the real teachings of the Buddha, the morality is not a set of guidelines to live up to on the path to, uh, let us say, wisdom. It's rather that gaining wisdom right here, right now, is the, is the better way of going. Because when you have wisdom, your morality is perfect. Mm -hmm. And cats don't have that. They don't have a sense of right or wrong. All they have is a sense of the instinct. In fact, your cat probably doesn't even know its name. Cats are like that. Yeah. For the dogs, they will at least know their name. Mm -hmm. You can. We've got one of the dogs named Lucky, and I can say Lucky, 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 or I can say Lucky in a different way many, many times, and I know that she understands because she'll, uh, if she's laying on the floor, you can hear a bang her tail on the floor. Yep. <laughs> so she knows her name, and Poom Pooey knows her name too. But when we've, when we've had cats from time to time, the cat, basically the problem is, is that the cats leave. These dogs are, they own the place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but cats don't tend to know their name very well. Uh, they don't respond in that way. Uh, so the point that I'm making about morality is, is that there's various levels of it. And that we have to start someplace. If we didn't have any morality at all, then everyone would have wrong view, which means that we would have chaos. And in mm -hmm. fact, human human behavior or human society is set up is, is that uh, the only way to not have absolute chaos, absolute uh, bedlam, um, uh, bar barbarism, is because we have social rules or social conventions. Those social rules or social conventions actually go right back into our DNA. That the animals have rules and social conventions, the way the dogs operate together for the chicken. They know that the other dog is there and that they cooperate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also, uh, there's many other behaviors than animals have. This very, very, um, let us say, revealing about human nature or human behavior. Um, an example of that is, um, especially dogs, not so much cats, but especially dogs, it's their nature, it's their instinctual behavior, uh, the the nesting instinct that whoever the dogs decide is going to be their alpha or the, the the leader of their pack, they want to be in the vicinity of that alpha leader. 
especially at night. That's why the mm -hmm. dogs want to sleep in bed with us. It's not the bed. Yep. It's not the bed. It is, in fact, the instinct, the nesting instinct that the dogs have. Okay, the the nesting instinct can be uh, phrased as going along to get along, which means to follow. Can you hear me? Okay, you're back. Great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we were we were talking about what do wildebeest do when they find a lion in the vicinity? What do lions do? Or excuse me, what do wildebeest do? They herd together. Mm -hmm. They herd together for protection. And the one who is in the middle of the herd is the one who's the most protected. Those in the center of the herd, it's only those that are on the outlying part of the herd that are in danger. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that means then that we as humans develop through our DNA and through our long history of evolution, we have developed that same herding instinct of going along to get along. Just like the wolves will sleep in a nest in the dens, and uh, just like fish will school is for protection. And when mm -hmm. we're little kids, we learn that. We learn to do what we're told to do so that we can get along. Mm -hmm. When we operate like that, the Buddha calls that being reborn in the woeful state of an animal. Okay. Okay. As opposed to the classical belief in rebirth has to do with the Brahmin belief of reincarnation, which is way off into the distant future or way back in the distant past. And the real teachings of the Buddha have to do with being here now in this present moment, not living in the past of five or 10 years ago. So <clears throat> there is very little reason for anyone to muse or reminisce or to worry or to fret or to even have dreams about past lives. Mm -hmm. Because they're so deep in the past, they don't mean anything. That over time, uh, let us say that any any action, any karma is like an energy and that we can compare it to light energy that the further light travels the more dispersed it gets if we were in uh the vicinity of the sun sort of like if we were around the area of mercury there would be so much light intensity coming off the sun that it would burn everything to a crisp but the further away that we move from the sun the fewer rays touch us because all the rays of the sun are going out in all uh, three-dimensional directions and therefore getting weaker and weaker as they go out in time. Mm -hmm. You can see that, right? Okay, that's just quite natural. Uh, but in fact, they've uh, uh, done one experiment that there are certain frogs who live in certain caves that can detect just one photon of light which is so little light that 
humans couldn't see it would be completely black but uh, uh but frogs can get a little bit of information just from one photon of light so what we're getting at is is that comma that happened hundreds of years ago gets weaker over time as it spreads out just like light beams do and therefore mm -hmm. the older the action the less effect it has a particular action that happened yesterday to you if that same action happened to you 15 years ago it's way deep in the past now doesn't mean hardly anything you may not even remember it but things stay fresh in the mind because of the time. The reason that I'm saying this is because people have the idea of rebirth and reincarnation in the sense that uh, a person's lifestyle or the way they live is now determined by what happened way deep dark in the past a long time ago. Yep. In fact, one. One of the um, interesting things back in the 1970s, when the Westerners were getting into this stuff, all the women that I knew, not all of them, uh, let us say this group of people who were doing this stuff and they found out about each other. But these four women all had the past life experience of having been Cleopatra. I knew four present day reincarnations of, re of Cleopatra. Mm hmm. Now, is that possible or what? <laughs> no. Okay. So this is what most reincarnation and rebirth is, is. It's a fantasy world or a fantasy trip that people have. And that it has to do with the fact of um, actually the action now is the boss for them or that uh, what happened, what's happening now is being affected by the past that I, I don't have any control over. The reality is, is that that's true, except that the whole teachings of the Buddha has to do with let's come out of that comma cycle and start making some present day choices. That we do not have to operate according to our uh, built-in programming or the instincts that we can in fact see that the instincts is much more of our karmic history or our karmic past than some action that some human being 3,000 years ago did that somehow the common machine has decided that guy and you are the same person therefore whatever I, uh, the common machine was going to dump on that guy now gets dumped on you. This is the idea that people have about it because they really don't understand that this is the rebirth is the rebirth of what happens in our mind when we move out of wisdom into instinctual behavior. Mm -hmm. That that's the real birth. That's the real rebirth. And it's almost always reborn into a woeful state of being. And that these uh, woeful states of being have um, analogies to them. Uh, but the real actual woeful state is the woeful state of anger, frustration, anxiety, just being hot. 
And this is uh, the label that's given as hell because hell is the description of a person who is hot and upset and trying to get out of a situation but feels trapped in it. And so this is hell and we all go through hell. But we always make our own hell. Mm -hmm. We manufacture our own hell with our feelings. Another of the woeful states, uh, the one that I've also mentioned, the third one is what is called the hungry ghost or the preta. And what this is based on is uh, that the ghost is pictured as a, a big balloon-like or big pot-like object that has a very, very small mouth, a very small opening. So it's got it's a huge container with a very, very small uh, opening. And what that means is that uh, the pot is capable of holding a whole lot of stuff, but it can't because the mouth is too small. And so the stuff can't get in. And so the ghost is constantly in a state of hunger. This is basically the human's mental state of wanting something that we can't have. The hole for that to get in is too small and therefore I cannot suck that Mercedes through a soda straw. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is what we mean then by the hungry ghost and that we're not talking about some sort of spook that's running around an apparition that lives in an old castle or something, maybe uh, in the bowels of a prison or uh, a slave house. This is what we have is the Western idea of ghost. <clears throat> but there was, in fact, a television show on the History Channel that ran for years that was basically uh, Ghostbusters. Mm hmm. I think we're talking about. From, from, from temple to uh, old house to graveyard to caves to old castles over and over and over again. And in their movies that they were making, new documentaries, they play spooky music and set up highly class, um, uh, sophisticated electronic gear. And at the end of every one of them, they never caught a ghost, but they were hot on the trail of one. Mm -hmm. Guess what? They never caught one. They never found a ghost. Nope. Nope, they never did. So the question then is, is with all that ghost hunting all over the world, um, if they can't catch a ghost, then it's, it's actually maybe not possible to catch one. And perhaps maybe the reason for that is, is that not only are ghosts hard to catch, they're hard to exist. Yep. Or you're trying to catch something that if it does, you're trying to catch something in a totally different plane that, that has a different set of rules, if it does. Right. It kind, of, it kind of reminds me of, because um, I've, I've always, cause I, I get asked that a lot about as a Buddhist, um, you know, the whole concept of reincarnation, or I get asked that a lot, to which I reply, well, Buddhist, that's a Hindu concept. Buddhists generally don't, you know, accept that as reincarnation that has to do with the soul. It's more of a concept of rebirth. And even that's going to depend on, there's different interpretations of that. But I've always, my favorite answer to that is the old story of the Zen master who was asked, you know, well, what happens when you die? And he said, I don't know. And the guy replied, well, you're a Zen master. And he goes, yeah, but I'm not a dead one. 
So that's what I always, when people ask me, it's like, hey, you know, I don't know. What happens, happens. I'm, I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on what's here in front of me. That's that's exactly right. Um, one thing on the side, can you turn your camera off and then back on? Your screen is frozen, and I didn't know whether you were still online or not until you talked. Oh, yeah. Let me see. Camera off and on, it may bring your video back. How about that? There you go. Now you're back again. Okay. All right. So we actually just for completion's sake, we talked about three of the woeful states, and I'll mention the fourth woeful state. And that fourth woeful state is called the state of the Ashura. And basically what these are um, is um they're like the Titans. You know about Greek mythology. The Titans are the warriors, heavenly warriors. But the mm -hmm. Titans are um, all dressed up for battle, but they don't go to war. They don't go to battle. Possibly the only reason that they could go to battle would be the battle against the higher gods because the warrior gods are very, very low class. And if they go against the, uh, the higher gods, they'll probably lose. So mm -hmm. basically what we're talking about here is that the state of Asura is the state of all dressed up and no place to go. It's the, uh, the state that we could call stage fright, where the little kid dressed up in a, a, a toy tree walks out on the stage and he's got one line in, his, in the play for the kids and he forgets his line. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is it. Stage fright is an example of the Asura state. That's but, happened to me too, by the way. <laughs> well, it probably happened uh, in really, really big ways, but in small ways, it happens quite often. We mm -hmm. get lost in the conversation. We don't know what to answer to somebody. We get stuck. Okay. Basically, what we can say is, is that even though this is a micro example, we get frozen in fear. Mm -hmm. All right, well, if we look at that, then these four woeful states that the Buddha is talking about is the range of emotions that we have when we're in negative emotional states. The woeful states of mind are anger, frustration, um, guilt, sadness, um, uh, afraid to move, don't know what to do, confusion. All of these are feelings that uh, we wind up in when we're, um, let us say, dealing with our feelings unwisely. If I see something I like, then I want it. If I want it, then I become uh, the hungry gross, the preta, because yep. I want something that I can't have. This happens quite commonly with meditators. When people are in meditation, they want things. Why do people meditate? I actually gen generally ask that of students. Why do you meditate? Why do you want to meditate? Generally, they do it because they want something out of it. Rather mm -hmm. than the real reason that the Buddha would give is, is that this is a marvelous state. We meditate because we like it. We meditate because we can do it. Not that we meditate because we want something out of it in the future. But it's interesting you bring that up. Um, the guy that I do Donna on Sunday mornings, the, the monk, he's, uh, he was actually trained in Thailand. He's American, 
Well, he was trained in a Mahasi tradition in Thailand. And you know, every once in a while, before COVID, he'd have all these students or these people that would come for the first time. And they were looking for, I guess, the same thing, the magic and the, the they, they were expecting they were going to sit down and meditate and they were going to see past lives and all this stuff before their eyes. And he would always disappoint them. He would say, well, the purpose of meditation, a lot of people will tell you that it's to relax or it's to do this. And he said, no, he would always tell them the purpose of meditation, at least the way I was taught and the way I teach it, is to observe and to, you know, go inside and see things as they are. If mm -hmm. you're if you're if you're got an itch, you just know, hey, I got an itch. Uh, it's nothing spectacular about it. And when I and he. It, it was usually amazing because when he did that every week, you'd see a new face. They wouldn't come back anymore because they didn't. That's what they wanted to hear. And he was perfectly fine with that because he was like, you know, well, this is my job. They may not want to hear it, but I can't fluff it up. I have to tell, you know, the way it is. And okay. <laughs> it, I, it was funny whenever that happened. It's kind of got me a good little laugh out of it. Well, uh since you said it this possibly is a good idea or a good time then to talk about it what you just said that the mahasi method is is in fact the western understanding of the mahasi method mm -hmm. but it is not actually what mahasi taught at least not in the literature of mahasi that i've read which dates back to about 1950. you're talking about and the manual of insight no, I'm I don't remember the name of it. It's in uh, there's some big book that they have. And this article that I'm talking about, I think, is in the appendix to the back of that somewhat large book. But the point that I'm making here is that. Most of the understanding from the West through the Mahasi method makes a critical mistake. Mm -hmm. It's not that they make a mistake, it's that they fail to emphasize a critically important point that is well known in the Mahasi method from Burma, but by the time it makes it to the West, it misses this critical point. Mm -hmm. Okay, now the critical point that we're talking about in the Mahasi, the uh, Mahasi himself, Mahasi Sayadaw, says that whatever the object of meditation is you have to jump on it you have to seize it actually the translation is the word to fall upon the way that thieves fall upon a victim on the road mm -hmm. they jump on it okay this is not taught in the mahasi method they talk just merely observe an observer is a bird watcher is not going to catch that bird. He's just going to watch it. Mm -hmm. That's a good okay. analogy. <clears throat> You've got to trap that bird. You've got to catch it. <clears throat> and this is the main distinction then between what you would call the Burmese or the Thai tradition. But most of the Thai tradition that gets out is either highly influenced by Burma, which is in the northeast part of Thailand. Uh, but. With the, there, there is a whole different group um, that is much more noble in Thailand. I don't want to go into Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's history right now, 
we could do that at another time, but rather to talk about that the Anapanasati Sutta is uh, the main sutta that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa works with, where the Mahasi works with mostly the Satipatthana Sutta, number 10. Mm -hmm. Okay. With the Anapanasati Sutta, it actually fills in some of the blanks that are uh, potentially missing, or let us say, easy to slough over or to um, uh, to pass by. It's written right there in the book, and yet people uh, run by right by it. The, the example of what we're talking about here is the hindrances that are talked about in the um, uh, Mahase method, especially in the Dhamma Nupasana, as what is there in the mind. But in the Satipatthana Sutta, it says when these hindrances are there, they are to be removed. Mm -hmm. Just like you can't just watch that fish, you got to catch it if you're going to have dinner. Yeah. Okay. This is also what we mean by having some skin in the game. It would be the difference between watching somebody else play a video game versus you playing the game yourself. Yep. Why? Because if you're just watching somebody else, you're just the observer, he's probably going to be making some moves that you didn't notice. Mm -hmm. The hand on the mouse is quicker than the eye, especially if the eye is watching the screen and not the mouse, and so he doesn't know what's going on. So mm -hmm. uh, here's the, here's the point of, of, of this then is, is that mere observation or what the noting practice is of Mahasi does not do the work that needs to be done. Because we don't have any skin in the game, it's just merely observational. And when that happens, the students really are not following the Four Noble Truths of the Eightfold Noble Path correctly. They wind up doing it like this, and when uh, the entire teachings of the Buddha is known as Dukkha Dukkha Naroda, except in the Mahasi method, it's the uh, note the Dukkha, there's the Dukkha, see the Dukkha, Dukkha Dukkha, go deep into Dukkha, a deep dive into Dukkha, and someday you'll have some Dukkha Naroda, but for right now, all you've got is Dukkha. Watch closely now. Mm. That's the Mahasi method. And that people get quite expert at noting the dukkha. And they wind up in states like fearfulness, misery, disgust, um, uh, a, a strong desire for escape. And that's because they've only been developing some of the skills that they need. And they're not developing the real skill that they need, which is right view. And the right view is to investigate, to see what's wholesome and not wholesome, and then take the Eightfold Noble Path's right effort to remove that hindrance from the mind. Mm -hmm. This is the basic teachings of the Buddha beyond all else, is the, the, the combination of these three adds a fourth ingredient in time. The first three is sati, to wake up, Number two is to investigate. You probably heard the example to wake up and smell the coffee. Heard that, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. What does that actually mean? It means to wake up and pay attention to what's going on around here. Mm -hmm. Okay. But even if you smell the coffee, what does that imply you do? Drink the coffee. That's an action. 
That's not mm-hmm. just smelling the coffee. So uh, the Mahasi method is to wake up and smell the coffee and so what? Yeah. The Anapanasati method is, is to, uh, to wake up and just smell the coffee and then do something about it. Get out of bed. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting what you were mentioning about the Mahasi method. Um, my biggest, uh, one of my biggest problems when I was doing it was I was taught at the very beginning you want to give every, you want to start with, the, of course, the rising and falling of the abdomen. That's your main object of concentration. Even and that is what a you mistranslation. Do, it's not the abdomen. Yeah. But, I mean, what That's I'm saying a, is what I was what, I what I was taught was to do that. And then when you first start out, you make a, a soft verbal in your mind, a label. And eventually you get past the label. Then you just note it or notice it. And then you eventually get past that. And my biggest problem I had with it is I struggle with adult ADHD and I was sticking with that labeling for so long verbally because it gave my mind something to do. When my mind had nothing to really do and just notice, it just wandered everywhere. But when I had a, a, a rising, a falling, a itching, a hearing, a thinking to keep saying in my mind over and over, it kind of, you know, made it easier until people were, I would have people tell me, well, you're supposed to get past that. And I just I just never did. But that's the way I was originally. Someone told me to, is to do the whole rising of the abdomen. Okay. Let's start with the word abdomen. Do you mm-hmm. know enough about the physiology of the human body to know where your lungs are? Um, For an example, point to your lungs right now. Point to left and then the right lung. Okay. Right here and right here. How about up here? The heart, well... Actually, no, yeah, I think there what, are, because the heart... Yeah, is, but... Right, but the heart has a smaller lung on the left side, but the heart is actually encased almost in the lung. hmm Okay, so there is a lung up here, and the heart is there, but the lung is all around it. Mm-hmm. Same thing, except on the right, we don't have the heart cavity, and so the right lung is actually larger than the left lung for most human anatomy. Mm-hmm. Where is the abdomen now? The abdomen, the traditional, I've always told it was right here, like around the navel. Right, okay. Now that, in fact, possibly the first thing that I ever heard about meditation back in the way back in the 1960s, I was a child, and they called it navel gazing, which was kind Mm -hmm. of a Christianized joke of the mistranslation of the word abdomen. Mm Mm-hmm. The rising and falling is not of the abdomen unless it's the diaphragm muscle that's moving. And the diaphragmatic muscles are above the abdomen. Mm -hmm. The abdomen is only going to move if uh, uh, in certain situations to where the breathing will arise in the chest. I mean, you can just actually put your hands on your chest. And when you're breathing, you can feel the movement. Yep. Okay. And that when we're doing a, a a proper observation of the body, it's not the arising and the falling of the abdomen. It's the arising and the falling of the breathing. Mm-hmm. 
that's what's to be observed is the right, but only in the sense you you've heard the expression rising, falling, touching, sitting. Yep. The rising, falling, touching, sitting is in fact the first four stages of Anapanasati by the numbers. And that the Gawanka method actually puts a lot into that touching and sitting in the sense that they talk about um, body scanning. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the whole point of it is, is to uh, get in touch with the body to wake it up, to wake it up, become much more alive and alert because it's part of our central awareness. See, you, when we're kids, little children are very, very sensitive to, bo to body touch. Every little thing is a boo-boo. Everything hurts. Mm -hmm. A child will fall down and cry for, it depends upon the adults around it, but you know, they just cry and cry because it hurts so much. Yep. We eventually, as humans, we get intellectual. We start looking at ABCs and one, two, threes, and we don't pay much attention to the body anymore. And after a while, we forget kind of all about it. That's especially true if we are city dwellers rather than living as country folk. Country folk are much more in touch with the body, but they're not so much smart up here to where the city mm -hmm. guys, they get all smart up here and they forget about the body. And yep, what a exactly. good pro a good meditator is going to do is integrate the two of them so that he's got high capabilities intellectual, but he's also fully in touch with his body. The rising, falling, touching, and now the sitting part is actually proprioceptic. That one thing that you can understand is, is that when you're laying down, you know you're laying down and you don't have to look at the body in a mirror or take a photo of it to see what posture you're in. That you mm -hmm. know that. How do you know your postures right down to where your fingers are? You even know where your toes are. You even know which toes are touching the floor or the bottom of the shoes or whatever like this that we're talking about. This is what we call not touch, but proprioceptic. And it's the knowledge of the body. Dancers get very, very good at knowledge of body positions and postures. Mm -hmm. Is my kick high enough? Is my is my arch graceful enough? You know, this is the kind of thing. And so dancers pay, but also sports people pay a lot of attention to the body. Yeah, they do. If you're going to jump into the air to catch that ball, they're going to have to have a whole lot of muscle coordination going on to be able to catch that ball while they're in the air at just the right height. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of body coordination. This is what we mean by it is really getting in touch with and knowing the body, but literally getting in touch with it in the sense of putting skin in the game. This is why we have the Anapanasati breathing as a conscious kind of breathing is getting in touch with the body. Knowing the body, knowing the breath. Uh, and not only that, but if you can control the mind, then you can control the breathing. And by being able to breathe and control the breathing, you're also controlling the mind. This is why the Buddha recommends a long, deep breath in the Anapanasati Sutta. But he also says very carefully that Anapanasati uh, practice is the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana. 
-hmm. But then we practice the Satipatthana for the fulfillment of the Sambhojana. But the Sambhojana or the seven factors of enlightenment are exactly the Eightfold Noble Path after it, the skills are developed. So in the beginning for the beginner, the Eightfold Noble Path is the skill of Sati that's to be developed, the skill of right effort to be developed, the skill of right view, which is uh, the main one. Right view comes first. But we can't apply right view until we remember to apply right view. So sati and right view and then taking the right effort to make the change from the unwholesome to the wholesome. <clears throat> so right view. Is actually making the discernment is what I'm doing right now, useful, valuable, wholesome and beneficial, or is it blase? Is it a junk thought? Or is it downright harmful? And so we could have then these three levels. You would have wrong view, ordinary right view, which is where most people live, which is junk thoughts, blase, whatever's going on, that's what I'm thinking about, as opposed to noble, high-class thoughts of, wow, this is wonderful. Isn't this nice? Everything's mm -hmm. all right. Everything is fine. So. Um, we need now then to take two changes that actually require the mind to go out and catch that bird rather than just looking at it or to go out and catch that fish rather than uh, just hoping. So how we're going to do that is by the breathing of making it easy and long on the in-breath means that we have to remember. If we don't remember, then the breathing will go back to being shallow. So the long deep breath doesn't have to be a major change in the way that we're breathing, but it has to be a conscious change that we actually do. Mm -hmm. So for the long in-breath, you remember that this is a long in-breath, and it's actually better to talk to yourself about this long deep in-breath and then on the out breath, we also remember that this is a long, deep out breath, that we're not going to forget about it or let the mind wander away. And so that means sati on the in breath and sati on the out breath. And that begins to develop the skill of sati. What is sati? To remember to do something. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's basically the wake up. Wake up and smell the coffee. Sati, wake up. Smell the coffee is the uh, right view of taking the senses. Okay, I smell the coffee with the sense of smell. It's not that I'm dreaming about coffee. I'm laying in bed asleep dreaming about coffee. I actually smell the coffee. It's real. Mm -hmm. And now I can take the effort to go get that coffee. Yep. All right. So those are the three first things of the Eightfold Noble Path is to wake up, to smell the coffee, and then get out of bed to go get it. In, in our practice is to remember that we're going to watch the breath, to take a deep breath and to watch the breath, but also the thoughts that we have have to be guarded, monitored, and changed. This is what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa means about that the comma is actually more of a re-comma that we actually have the English language word for reaction. 
Now, what we mean by reaction or react is, is that we're doing the same actions over and over again. We react. When a stimulus happens, we have a reaction to it if it's automatic. But we also can respond to it, but the response has to be through wisdom. Okay, so the difference is, is, is this real or is it imaginary? And if it's in the mind, it's imaginary. And we're going to live in a real world, which means we wake up out of the sixth sense of the mind and come into developing the other five senses that we haven't been paying much attention to. Mm -hmm. That in fact, even when we're seeing, we don't see, we just see a little bit. And then we think we have see, think, feel, see, think, feel, see, think, feel. And we never get to the point of just seeing and seeing and seeing so that the scene is merely the scene and the herd is merely the herd requires a great deal of mental uh, strength to stop that perceptional uh, feeling process. But normally it goes, I see it, I think about it, I feel about it, then I either like it or don't like it, and then I wind up in one of those woeful states of clinging because I don't like it or I like it. Mm -hmm. And this is the suffering. This is the dukkha, is getting reborn into these woeful states. There's four woeful states and there's four modes of clinging, and they they are corresponding. Okay. The the uh the the corresponding ones uh have to do with well, let's get into that a little bit later. Let's get stay back on, on the basics. That the mind winds up in woeful states unless we can catch it. And so the faster we are, the quicker we can catch these things and then make modification to them. It's not just a matter of observing the bird or noticing. It's a matter of we've got to catch it. We've got to make some changes. And this is what we mean then about the unwholesome thoughts is we have to label an unwholesome thought as an unwholesome thought, but then we have to change that thought from a unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. Um, in Sutta number 117, which is an, uh, an exposition of the Eightfold Noble Path, it talks about right effort in the sense of what is one's right effort. And there's two places where it's mentioned. One is, is that one's right effort is to see wrong view as wrong view and to change it into right view. And then later it says one's right effort is to see wrong attitude as wrong attitude and to change it to right attitude. This is actually the work that it takes. One's right effort means that we have to actually make a change. We have to actually seize it. It's not like just watching somebody else play a video game. We've got to get in there and get in that game. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've got to actually go uh, catch that thing. So there is also in Sutta number 19, the name of the sutta, by the way, is two kinds of thoughts. And in this, the Buddha talks about what is wholesome thought and what is unwholesome thought. 
but it's an ambiguous kind of thing because the students have to begin to figure this out for themselves. One of the things for sure that we can think of is, is that thoughts of wanting things that we don't have or thoughts of uh, trying to put up with something that we don't want to put up with or worse still, thoughts of cruelty. And an agitated mind is in fact uh, kind of cruel. If, if you're sitting there reminiscing and worried over something and keep hitting it and keep hitting it, in a way you're kind of cruel to yourself. It's like a mother who's angry at a child and keeps yelling and keeps yelling and keeps yelling at the child, which is one time was enough to get heard the first time. Mm -hmm. But mom keeps yelling and keeps screaming because she's angry. Okay, so this is the way that we uh, operate within our own minds is that we are actually cruel to ourselves sometimes. We keep yelling at ourselves for doing something and we're not doing it anymore, but we're thinking about it that in, in fact, we can feel guilty and remorseful of, of a thought that, about something that happened five years ago. And we can feel bad about it again. All we have to do is think about it and then we start to feel bad. This is the reactions that we have that we're talking about, rather than the response. A real response would think about, oh, well, that, that happened five years ago. That wasn't me. Who I am now is who I am now, and I uh, renounce that kind of behavior. But five years ago, I did that kind of behavior because that is a change. I have changed. I am not that person anymore. But that is wholesome. Most people don't. They keep thinking that, all oh, five years ago, I did that. Therefore, I'm the one who did that. Me now is the same one who did that five years ago. And therefore, because I think about what happened five years ago, I got to punish me that did it right now again. Mm -hmm. Right. But wisdom would say, but I I've changed. I don't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> Therefore, who did that is not me. And so I don't have to feel bad about what happened something five years ago that happened to someone else. So here's the point then. This sutta number 19 is to come out of our cruelty and that there's analogy there. And the analogy is, is that a um, a cow herd has to take his few cows, because this is ancient India, you know, we're not drovers with uh, 15,000 cows going from Texas to Kansas, but rather mm -hmm. just four or five cows and, and the cow herd has a stick uh, <clears throat> that he carries because he's got to go down a pathway and on this path, uh, there are food stalls, kids, a kind of village and whatnot like that. And if these cows misbehave, start stealing the food, trample on the kids, uh, then the cow herd is going to have trouble. So he has to guard these cows. And if that cow goes off to get something, he's going to whack that cow with that stick. And mm -hmm. as he passes through, he's very mindful to make sure that the cows are not going to do any damage. They're not going to run into any furniture. They're not going to break down a stall. They're not going to take food. They're not going to harm anyone. They're going to get on that path and stay on that path until he gets through the village. 
once he gets out to the pasture with the cows, um, he can then relax because now the cows are not in danger. And the analogy is, is that getting the cows through the village and whacking them is keeping the thoughts wholesome. One wholesome thought after another, we don't let the mind wander away. By the way, can you move? I can, you're only cut off at your nose. I can only see your mouth. That's that's oh, okay. But if you can arrange. No, what mouth. it is is just I've been working all week and I've, I've been up since three o'clock this morning. So once it gets near the end, I just start to just like slumber off, and then I have to keep trying to raise myself up. Okay. <clears throat> so the analogy then is the, the analogy of let's have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought with this uh, cow uh, herder. Because when the cows are in the pasture and that they're safe, now he can relax. He doesn't have to stand there with his stick whacking the cows. Then in mm -hmm. fact, he can go sit down under a tree and just keep an eye on them. Because what the cows are doing now are all wholesome. This is what the Buddha would uh, have the analogy that getting the cows out to the pasture so that they can be wholesome and not harming anything at all is very much like the first jhana, which means that now we can find a relax because the mind is completely wholesome. But this takes skin in the game. This takes waking up and smelling that coffee and finding out that that coffee you don't want to drink. <laughs> <laughs> And so um, this is some point different than the Mahasi method, but it, in fact, it really is the Mahasi method with just a small ingredient missing. And that uh, small ingredient that's missing in, in the Anapanasati Sutta is actually step 10, this called gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. And you can see from these other suttas that I've talked about, that means that we have to actually change the content of the mind to where with the Western method of Mahasi, we only note it without making that change. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the uh, Mahasi method is a bird watcher and the Anapanasati has fowl for lunch. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference is, is that the bird watcher is only going to be able to react what the bird is doing. So when the bird goes over there, he reacts and he moves. All he can do is react, but he can't catch the bird. Yeah. This is the major difference then between why the Mahasi method is so difficult and so slow a progress to where the Buddha's practice. In fact, in one of the suttas, number 111, the Buddha talks about that it only took uh, uh, Sariputta two weeks, only a fortnight. But he started that fortnight with this statement, quite secluded from sensual um, uh, desire, quite secluded from unwholesome states. This is how we start. This is not how we wind up. This is how we start is start with a mind free from hindrances. Mm -hmm. The Mahasi method starts with mind still in hindrance. Yeah. And we note them. 
Oh, and so it's possible long. for someone to do the Mahasi method for 5, 10, 15, 20, maybe 50 years. And to never get to the point of saying I'm doing something wrong. And basically what that means is, is that they have to make the change from Dukkha to Dukkha Naroda. <clears throat> mm -hmm. We have to see that Dukkha in the mind. That cow uh, herd ha has to whack that cow to keep it from grabbing that carrot. Okay, mm -hmm. so we have to whack the mind in a way to to change the unwholesome thought to make it a wholesome thought. Mm -hmm. And an easy way to do that is by tying the breath and the thoughts together by having good wholesome thoughts about the breathing as well. Like, wow, as I breathe in, I breathe in joy. And as I breathe out, I relax. This would be wholesome thoughts. <clears throat> wow, this is a good one. <gasps> oh, I feel so good. So this is the direction that we're going in is not just that we're taking control of the breathing, but we're actually taking control of everything. In order to control the breathing, you got to control the mind. But to properly mm -hmm. control the mind means that you're going to only have the content of the mind that you want to have as the mind. Not just whatever pops up, because we have been, in fact, non-discriminatory our whole life. We tell kids to think, but we don't tell them what to think. We tell them how to behave, but we don't tell them about thinking. But the mind is a, a forerunner for everything. And so because we don't teach our kids how to think, we, they wind up just thinking whatever junk thoughts that there are, and we wind up living a junk life. An ordinary life based upon ordinary thinking, when in fact we could have a marvelous life just by merely having marvelous thinking. An example, in fact, the way that I like to express it, is, is that we have spent our whole lives talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good. Mm -hmm. That's what we mean by the Anapanasati or the gladdening of the mind, which is also meaning to put wholesome thoughts in the mind. So now that we have wholesome thoughts in the mind and we have wholesome breathing that we're watching, something new happens. And that is, is that the feelings come into play. If we have feelings of fear, but we have thoughts of everything is all right, no alligators here, no problems, and we look at the situation wisely, we can see that in fact, in this particular moment, there's no reason to be fearful. That I can come out of my fear and come to a state to where I feel secure and comfortable. Why is it? I mean, the house that you're living in there looks like very, very safe and comfortable place. Why is it that you spend so many moments in that house with fear and anxiety? Because you're living safe. The answer is, is because you remember that you for that you felt uh, fearful in the past. And so by having thoughts of the past, you'll bring up the fears of the past. If you mm -hmm. don't have any thoughts of the past, then there's nothing to be afraid of right now. There's no fearful things in this present moment. 
And all the fearful things in the past are still in the past now. They don't exist anymore. And yet Mm -hmm. people carry around their fears based upon their old memories, which are unwholesome. To think about the past and then to feel bad about the past is an unwholesome, unworthy thing for a human to do. Not noble at all. The noble thing is to see how beautiful things are right now, recognize how beautiful they are, see it directly with wisdom that things are nice right now, and then enjoy it. But no, we keep telling ourselves, well, things were screwed up in the past. They will be screwed up in the future. So why don't I go ahead and complete the operation and feel like things are screwed up now? Instead of recognizing, yeah, things were screwed up in the past and more things are going to get screwed up in the future. But right now, everything's great. Mm -hmm. And if we can keep that mentality going one breath at a time, everything right now is okay. Everything is fine. Then we can literally talk ourselves into satisfaction. We can talk ourselves into feeling comfortable because we actually do feel comfortable. We're sitting here relaxing the body, taking deep breaths, and everything is okay. Mm -hmm. But the noting method is just noting the crap. We're not just noting the crap. We're taking the trash out. Yes. And so it has a lot to do with attitude. And as we begin to change our attitude, the job becomes easier. That one's right effort in the beginning is actually effort. We have to put some effort in. We have to put some skin in the game. But as we get successful, we begin to build upon that success. And that success is now the next ingredient. The fourth item on the Eightfold Noble Path is Sama Sankapa, one's right attitude. That um, we're beginning to actually add the enthusiasm. I could do this. I can clear out my mind. I can get myself into a really good state. I've watched me do it. I've been doing it before. I can do it again. This is the way that we begin to approach it. So we gain a new attitude, and that attitude is the attitude of a winner, as opposed to the attitude that we were born and raised with, which is the attitude of a victim. The attitude of one down, the attitude of a child, has to put up with the fact that the adults are bigger and better than I am. And we start off in that childlike position, and we maintain it, and we never grow up out of being a victim. But with this Sama Sankapa as a part of the Eightfold Noble Path, we're intentionally growing up. We're intentionally feeling successful. We're intentionally developed the attitude of a lion and no longer have the attitude of uh, a victim. So the, the, the victim's attitude is, wow, meditation is so hard. The mind is a monkey mind. It just jumps all around and it's really hard to control. But that's just the wrong attitude. Mm-hmm. The right attitude is, hey, man, come on back. We can do this. Yeah, the mind wandered away. Never mind. You forget that. Let's come back and start again. We can do this. Mm-hmm. So this is how the Four Noble Truths worked with that Eightfold Noble Path through the breathing with Anapanasati, gladdening the mind, 
And we eventually add this fourth ingredient of the right attitude, and that attitude is the winner's attitude. And so then the Buddha in another sutta mentions that when the certain comes to the point that they can say with that confidence that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, no matter what way it gets obstructed, I can clean that out and come back to this present moment and be here now and see what's going on in reality. This is the first teaching of the Buddha that is noble, super mundane, and a factor of the path and not helped by ordinary people. Ordinary people still are victims to their own minds. They're victims to the circumstances. An example of that is, is that you're tuning along or that somebody's tuning along and they look in the rearview mirror and they see the red lights and they hear the siren going. Mm-hmm. How do you feel at that moment? When you see the cop stop. Okay, but how you're feeling and what you're thinking is a mental hindrance. The cop hasn't even stopped you yet. You're still driving. Yep. And so in this particular moment, everything's still okay. But we freak out. Not because of what the cop has done, but because of what we think might go wrong, what we think might happen. Mm hmm. Oh, no, this is terrible. Okay. And so that means that now the mind is hindered. But if you have Anapanasati and the cop stops you, you can take a deep breath, roll down your window, and be very happy to see that cop. Wow, I'm so happy to see you, officer. I'm glad to see you guys out on duty here. Yeah, he might try to arrest you for being on drugs. (laughs) Well, When people are afraid of the police, they act with fear. They create an atmosphere of fear. And then the cop picks up on that fear as as natural. And he's going to respond to the fearful situation as if it's a dangerous situation. and Somebody's likely to get killed. All because, for instance, George Floyd could not control his feelings. He was freaked Mm -hmm. out. If he'd have said, hi, officer, glad to see you. But oh no, he says, oh, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. Mm -hmm. And he freaks out and he gets killed because of his own fear. We actually create that which uh, is the danger. The danger Mm -hmm. we create in the mind and then we attract that danger. An example of that is who do the dogs bark at? They bark at the person who knows the dogs and are friendly and say, hi, dog, I see you. Or or is he going to be... um, uh, the dog's going to uh, respond viciously to the guy who shots and afraid and doesn't know how to, you know, like postman. For some reason, the post office only hires people who are afraid of dogs. Yeah. Well, like I was told by, you know, many years ago, if the dog's like chasing you, as soon as you run, they sense that fear and that's when they will come. And when I lived in Colorado, they would tell hikers that when you're out hiking, you come upon a cougar. Don't just turn around and run. Don't turn your back on it. Um, in fact, some of them, they have their bikes. They tell them to raise the bike over their head to look bigger and charge after it. And I've heard stories where they did that and Cougar ran off. But as soon as you act afraid and take run, they pick up on that fear and they, they chase you down. Guess what? Not just Cougars and dogs and cops. But that happens in all situations. It happens if 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 a kid is yelled at by mom and the kid stands up and says, 
you're right, mom. I really agree with you. I'm not going to do that anymore. That'll stop her in her tracks. But if that kid goes like this, she's just going to attack that kid. It's very natural. It's part of the instincts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Knowing that you behave that way, we can be on guard for it. So that no matter what happens, we can uh, be fearless. No matter Mm -hmm. how obstructed the mind gets with dangers or whatnot like that, we can clean that out and come back and look at the situation. An example of that is the biker who is uh, being confronted by the cougar. He knows that if he uh, runs away from that cougar, the cougar's gonna chase him. But if he Mm -hmm. confronts the cougar, the the cougar is not gonna challenge him, not with that great big bicycle up there. (laughs) Yep. Mm -hmm. Right, so this is wisdom. Wisdom is is that we've gotta take charge. We're the champion here, we're the lion. We can handle anything. You can handle that cop. That cop, what? he's just a child. Mm-hmm. And so I treat him like a happy little boy, and that cop will be a happy little boy. He won't give me a ticket. Or if he does, I can handle that too. Yep. <laughs> so these are examples of very, very heavy situations we get ourselves into. But it's not the situation that's dangerous. It's our mental response to it. Mm-hmm. So that means that we actually have to learn how to take control of the mind. I mean, it wouldn't have helped uh, uh, George Floyd very much if he would uh, had seen that cop and says, fear, 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 fear. I'm noting fear. I've been to Mahasi. I know what fear Mm -hmm. is. I can hear fear, Mm -hmm. fear, 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 you know, (laughs) (laughs) no, we actually have to do more than just monitor to smell the coffee, we've got to actually get up and do something about it. So this little talk that we've had today is all about uh, putting some skin in the game or not doing a passive meditation, but doing an active meditation. And the action that we have to do is to clean out the mind and to put wholesome thoughts in. And so many students will say, well, yeah, but what's a wholesome thought? The answer to that is that's a skill that each one of us has to develop by checking things out. That in the beginning, we would think that just ordinary junk thoughts are okay. But later, we Mm -hmm. can recognize that no, those those ordinary junk thoughts actually keep me a bit agitated. And if I didn't have them, I'd feel better. Mm -hmm. And so we begin to then discern more and more about is this thought wholesome or not? And we begin to gain the skill of knowing what is wholesome. And then we uh, start to um, intentionally have wholesome thoughts and intentionally catch unwholesome thoughts and throw them out so that we wind up with a mind that has one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. And now when that happens, guess what? When we're doing the Mahasi method, we only have wholesome things to be noted. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go around noting all the dukkha and all the suffering and all the trash that we're not taking out. We've taken mm-hmm. out the trash. And so now we have a vista that we can uh, um, note. Mm-hmm. 
got some clarity. We throw the trash out and now we can see further. We can really do some noting now. And so the noting actually would start, the Mahasi method would start after the mind is clean, uh, free from hindrances. But in the West, the way that Mahasi method is taught is instead of noting the hindrances and then throwing them out, they just note it and note it and note it some more. Yep. And that's why the 16 stages of insight uh, uh, that comes out of the Vasudhi Maga has that step six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 that has fear, misery, disgust, despair, and strong desire to get out of it. That's because the student has only been developing some of the skills that they need, the skill of observation, but not the skill of taking charge, not the skill of either right effort nor right attitude. And that was only lost in translation. That's a translation error. Mm -hmm. That's merely a translation error that didn't make it from Asian culture to Western culture. Mm -hmm. So now I'm introducing that to you, that this is the ingredient that in Western Mahasi has been missing is this point about that you've got to take control of your own mind. You've got to throw those hindrances out. Okay. And get the mind in, in good, perfect working order, which means it is working with good, wholesome input. Okay. Okay. You've heard the expression garbage in, garbage out, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, if you've got garbage in the mind, guess what's going to come out of your mouth? Uh, it's the exact same thing, garbage. <laughs> exactly. But if you've got good, proper, wholesome, high-quality, noble thoughts in the mind, What's going to come out of the mouth? The exact same thing. Exactly. Noble thoughts. And, and believe me, whether you're having wholesome thoughts and wholesome speech when you're being stopped by the cop is important. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. It's better to have wholesome speech with the cop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Than to tell him, hey, you guys out here in blue, you're... You, you're just doing sting operations. Nobody out here on the road is doing anything wrong. You you cops are just money grubbers. You're out here giving tickets to make people feel bad and make them out a lot of money for the city. Why don't the city raise their taxes instead of charging your motorists for? If you mm -hmm. have that kind of attitude with the cop, guess what? <laughs> yeah, you generally it's not going to end too well. It's not going to end well at all. You may be right. But it's not a good wholesome thing to do. Being no. right is not always wholesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet in our society, being right seems to be the only criteria. Yeah, or at least the one that people think about the most. Mm -hmm. They don't factor in anything else. Yeah, well, if I'm right, then I won't get into trouble. Oh, yes, you can. You can take that right action and do some right damage with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Almost definitely. And get yourself into a right bit of trouble. Mm -hmm. So this is the whole quality then is, is that we're looking more for wholesome, beneficial, rather than whether we're right or not. Okay. Because being right is often unwholesome. It is. 
And so we have to make that distinction also. How do we tell what's a wholesome thought and what's not a wholesome thought? A lot of people make the mistake, well, it's right, therefore it must be wholesome. No, just because it's right doesn't make it wholesome. It has to do with how you how you do it. I mean, that can of paint may be a right good can of paint, but if you throw it against somebody's wall, <laughs> it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. No, you got to be careful with the way that we apply that right foot paint. So this is the practice of Anapanasati, is right um, sati to remember to take long, deep, easy breaths and to wake up, to take an investigation of what have we got in our mind? Is it wholesome or not? And then number three is to take the effort to throw that stuff out that's unwholesome and when we keep doing that, then the fourth ingredient is right attitude. Hey, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And we come out of that position of being a lion into the position of being, uh, excuse me, out of the position of being a victim into the position of being noble. Mm -hmm. Not in danger. And so, um, it's not a matter of how deep we breathe, but rather that it is conscious, deep breathing. And when I say deep, I'm not talking about deep like 100% in and then 100% out, because that's too much work. Lungs are different than that anyway. They, they go in a, in a small range. Yes. And so just expanding that range just a little bit is all that's needed to make sure that we're getting a lot of air, a lot of uh, healthy oxygen coming in, as well as throwing out the carbon dioxide. This is what happens when people are afraid, is in fact, our breathing gets really shallow. That's instinctual. Mm -hmm. It's called the freeze that happens before the flight or the fright, uh, fight or flight. So we freeze and then make the choice of fight or flight. What we need to do is, not go into that freeze stage is by continuing to breathe well because basically if we if we're afraid let us say that uh, uh uh that the mail came in and i stuffed it in my pocket and took and went to work and now i'm sitting at work and i open that water pill and i go into a panic mm -hmm. right but the, it was just a piece of paper there is no reason to have a panic because I see a water bill. Mm -hmm. It's just a piece of paper. Right now, I'm okay. I might want to panic when I turn the water on and there's no water coming out of the faucet. That might be the time to panic, and I should have wisely taken care of it before then. But people do panic when they open the mail. There's no reason to yes. panic. So whenever you open your mail, before you start opening, you can do some out upon a sati with the thought that there's nothing in this mail that's going to upset me. That's a good one. There's Definitely nothing here one. that will upset me. Any mail that I read, if I get upset, it's because I choose to do that and I did it unwisely. If I choose to feel wisely, I will feel good when I can, and I can handle any, any mail that comes in. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm -hmm. I can handle it. So that's the right attitude. That's Sama Sankapa. The attitude, I can do anything. I can handle this moment. 
I don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the future because I'm ready for it right now. If I can handle this moment, I can handle the next one. If I can handle that moment, I can handle the next one. One moment at a time, off into the future. Mm -hmm. And one of those moments is going to bring death, and I can handle that too. Mm -hmm. One of those moments is going to bring sickness, and I'm going to handle that too. Yep. And one of those moments is going to bring old age, and I can handle that too. Yep. That's the way to look at it is, is that not this is Duca, 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 and I'll be free from Duca sometime. It's that, oh, no, there will be Duca coming in the future. Are you ready for it? Are you prepared? That's the right attitude. Yeah, I'm ready for mm -hmm. it. I can handle this moment shiningly. I can handle that moment also. This is Sama Sankapa, the right attitude. The right attitude is based upon success. The success of being able to gladden the mind and take a deep breath and relax. Because that's the right way to die, I would think. Why should you die uptight when you could die relaxed? It's a matter of attitude. Yeah. That's the way most people would want to, I would think. Mm-hmm. So let's finish off now. Uh, this has been a very good segue talking about the Mahasi method because uh, it's a it's a good uh, point or analogy about what's the right way to practice. Mm -hmm. We're getting great benefit out of it. Okay. Okay. Do you have any questions? Uh, no, you were actually uh, you pretty much got you know everything you had answered and. I'm still working on what you were talking about last week, and I have this, you know, as well. So, and that's what I've been doing. Whenever I got any kind of question, I just go back and then just watch it over, or I just a lot of it I can remember at what point we were talking about it. I can go find it, and I can still reference that if I need it. That's excellent. I'm glad. Mm -hmm. Okay, Brady. Well, we'll see you later then. All right. We'll see you, you next week. You you keep practicing, keep doing it, and we'll we'll go into it a little deeper. All right. Thank okay, you. Okay, bye bye.